In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Composer Michael Kamen's score for 1996's 101 Dalmatians is a masterpiece with gorgeous orchestration, playful motifs, and unique instrumentation. Hard to believe it's been 25 years since this film debuted, one that I fondly remember watching in the theaters and countless times on VHS. On this reunion of many of the musical talents behind the film, including Brad Warnar, Christopher Brooks, Robert Elhai, and Stephen McLaughlin, the team reflect on their connections to Michael, collaborations across various projects, and fun stories associated with working on Dalmatians. This was a real treat, and quite the interview opportunity to talk with a whole group of folks. You'll notice there are a few places where I insert a signature cue from the film that sounds like pup 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 puppies. This is actually to uh, bleep out a few curse words uttered by the guests uh, and was suggested as a remedy to keep the recording uh, squeaky clean. Uh, so it's a witty use of a theme from, from the film. Um, I, I quite enjoyed the recommendation. Uh, and I hope you enjoy this very extensive and rich conversation with Brad, Chris, Robert, and Steve. And thank you very much. 25 years ago, Disney engaged in one of its earliest reimaginings of a classic animated film into live action with the massive hit 101 Dalmatians, which starred Glenn Close, Jeff Daniels, and Jolie Richardson, among others. The film's lush score, composed by the legendary and late Michael Kamen, is perhaps an overlooked gem that features some memorable tunes, themes, and rich orchestration. And today on Notably Disney, we reunite some of 101 Dalmatians musical players and uh, masterful minds, I have no doubt, in reflecting back on the creative process behind what I believe is a truly magnificent score. Joining me is a terrific team of four folks, orchestrator Robert Elhai, orchestrator Brad Warnar, music editor Christopher Brooks and music recordist and mixer Stephen McLaughlin, 
I imagine this will be a doggone good conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Robert, Brad, Chris, and Steve. Thank you. Hey, great to be here. Hi. <clears throat> well, great to have you all on. Um, this will be very entertaining if our uh, pre-recording conversation is any indication, um, which was a lot <laughs> of fun. Hope you, re- hope you recorded that because you never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that can be in the bonus features, that Chris. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we have a lot to talk about here, folks. So I'm wondering just for folks to have some context of who each of you are and what your experiences are, if you could maybe talk about your major music-based experiences that shaped your formative years. So maybe we can start uh, with Robert and then proceed from there. Uh, sure. Well, my, my formative years started off in, as, as a child, I learned learning piano and uh, <clears throat> my first, the first thing that really got me excited that I ever had anything to do with was a musical theater workshop where I was actually one of the performers, but I was a lot more interested in what the accompanist was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, also, and I was looking at him uh, watching his scores go by, and I noticed that some of the scores he was using had little orchestration indications in it. And I, I was just really that really grabbed my attention. So ever since then, I've been very, I've been passionate kind of about the theater and about orchestration. Uh, I'm also a composer and I've written for the theater and, and I'm going to keep writing for the theater. But, but uh, one of the things I, I like about that, I got, well, so the next thing that happened is I got hooked up after graduate school with Elliot Goldenthal uh, who needed some help for on a piece that he was doing for the, the actually for the theater with Julie Taymor, one of one of their early pieces, and uh, I was I, so I started working with him, and before we even knew what was happening, he started getting gigs, uh, doing film scores, and people were liking what he was doing, and before we even again before we knew what was happening, we were in L.A. at Fox Studios recording the score to Alien Three. <laughs> which, which you know, it's the first time any of any of us were in LA. I remember it well. <laughs> yes, it was. It was just. It was insane, and that went very well. So we were brought back for a, a, another great classic movie that everybody loves called Demolition Man. <laughs> which, which I remember that well. <laughs> I remember that well, and that was my first acquaintance with the uh, with the other esteemed gentleman on this uh, on this committee. Uh, it was my, my first experience with, with uh, it was not my, it was my first experience at Warner Brothers. And as it turns out, it was Chris and Steve's first experience with Elliot. And they invited me to hang around and work with Michael on the movie that he was doing right after that, which was The Three Musketeers. And then I made the esteemed acquaintance of Brad. And <laughs> It was fantastic experience, and I was with him ever since. Thank you. Yeah, it, it sounds, you know, one, one connection I made as you're talking there, Robert, too, you mentioned um, the early project with Julie Taymor, and I know ultimately you were involved with uh, The Lion King on Broadway. So um, what, I'm, what I'm already sensing and what, what you you're all are saying is just how, every, how interconnected 
the music world is. Uh, yes, that's true. And and actually working on The Lion King was, a, you know, in terms of working on a, a Disney project was a totally different side of working with Disney, you know, working with their theatrical division as opposed to their film division. But it was it was a great experience. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing. Let's uh, turn it over to Brad at this point. Same question about your musical roots and early experiences. Okay. Well, uh, I'm the oldest guy in the group. So uh, I guess it starts when I was orchestrating for Beethoven briefly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That's it. And that's it. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, uh, I started, my, my career has always had uh, two heads therefore two hats. Um, uh, I uh, have been a French horn player for almost my entire life and uh, started doing it professionally when I was 19. Um, and uh, when I started, I, that was a, as a member of the Rochester Philharmonic. And three years after that, I moved to Toronto to play in that orchestra. And I, I started doing some freelance work when I was in Toronto, and interestingly enough, even from my my high school days, uh, the idea of doing studio work always interested me. I was always kind of fascinated, like who are those people behind the scenes that I hear on these great, like the late 60s was kind of a heyday for uh, television music when Lalo Schifrin and uh, you know, there was Mission Impossible and, uh, all of those, uh, but Mannix, who can forget Mannix? But um, I, it caught my attention. I was thinking that, that's a, that could be an interesting kind of career move right there. So um, in Toronto, I started doing some of that. And while I was playing on sessions, I was kind of watching the composers and I started thinking, you know, I don't see any reason why I couldn't do that. So um, I got a shot uh, in, Probably 1979, I got a, a, a kind of stumbled into a project that uh, was a, a four-part series that was a co-production of the CBC and the BBC. It was a, a kids' movie kind of thing. And uh, make a long story less long. <laughs> Shortly after that, I moved to uh, LA and um, continued to play. Uh, I've played on about a thousand movies at this point. Um, and shortly after moving here, I got connected with a guy named Pete Myers, who was doing, uh, he was one of the, one of those brave souls that was hacking out the music for television shows week after week. And uh, we worked on, on uh, Dynasty and Falcon Crest and all those kind of shows. So I, that's where I got my feet wet as an orchestrator. Um, I kind of learned the ropes and, and um, Pete had also was, was using Greg McRitchie, who was one of the grand old men of uh, orchestration. Um, and uh, when he could get him, but most of the time he was too busy writing music with other people's name on it, name, names that you've heard <laughs> and know well but Don't um, break any secrets there Brad no no well it's, it's okay no I won't say that I will say it. no I won't uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway um, 
So uh, watching Greg, uh, I really learned that, you know, I had a good idea about what an orchestra does and what the instruments do. Uh, you know, my, my parents were both music teachers, so I used to go out to my father's band room on the weekends and I, I got my hands on all the instruments. So I, I had a, a hands-on sense of what instruments do. And I, I had a girlfriend that played violin, so that, that was my introduction to the string world. But um, what I really needed to learn was how to do this all quickly and how to not waste time making it more than it needs to be. And Greg was great in teaching me that. And also how to get it on the page exactly how people need to see it and uh, not, not waste your time and the orchestra's time getting real cute with it, but just learn how to be practical and have it sound great at the same time. So that, that was a, a great mentorship. Um, how I came into uh, Michael's world, um, <laughs> I printed up a crib sheet for me so I got the so I could get the chronology right. Um, the first, my first experience with Michael was playing on Die Hard 2 in 1990, and then uh, I played on Hudson Hawk in 1991, and then later in that year um, came along Robin Hood and um, Patty, Patty, well, what, she was probably Patty DeCaro at that point. Uh, she was Fidelibus by then. Was she Fidelibus, yeah. uh, later Patty Zimitti, um, who was uh, one of the greatest figures in uh, the musical life of Los Angeles ever, in my humble opinion. Um, she was just a great person to help people with their careers and to put orchestras together on the basis of how it's going to work rather than just who was uh, her favorite person of the week. Uh, so she pointed me in the direction of Michael. She said, you know, this movie's coming up and it's a, it's a mountain of music and they're hiring lots of orchestras and you need to get your name in there and, and get going. So I, uh, I did. I said, I'm also an orchestrator <laughs> and uh, he said, great. And uh, I did one cue for Robin Hood. And uh, then uh, we, let's see here. Then there was a, 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 a kind of a four or five more movies, Last Boy Scout, Lethal Three, Last Action Hero, Wilder Napalm, who can forget that? 1993. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then came Three Musketeers, and uh, that, as Bob mentioned, that's when, when I met Bob. And uh, Bob very graciously invited me along on, uh, on the Brian Tyler train shortly after that. So, and that's uh, a lot of what we're doing now um, is uh, working with Brian. So uh, Bob and I go way back and I have most of my current career to thank. <laughs> I have him to thank for most of what I'm doing that's keeping food on the table right now. So thank you, Bob. <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure. I have you to thank for being able to, to step in when, when I couldn't handle everything. <laughs> so anyway, so that's kind of me going on way too long about how I got here. No worries. Thank you for sharing, Brad. I feel like as 
both of you so far have been mentioning different projects and composers. It's almost like IMDB bingo of sorts in terms <laughs> of, oh, this is referenced. Interesting. Uh, and we're learning uh, some trivia along the way. Um, let, let's shift over uh, to Chris now. Same question, Chris. Early musical roots and experiences that were important. Well, the, it, this could go on for years, so I'll try to be brief. Uh, the the five-minute version, I, right? <laughs> I'll do the five-minute version. I did, um, probably my beginning, I was a musician. When I was seven years old, I said I wanted to be a professional musician. I had no idea what that meant, but I don't easily back down, so I stuck with that. By the time I was about 13, I had a gig playing uh, in a pit for um, – was kind of a review. It was called 10 Nights in a Bar Room. And the biggest thing that I had to do was I had to play a bump and grind for this crazy woman. And that was kind of it. I, I was hooked. I was like, I've got to, I don't care what else is going on in the world. I have to do this sort of um, dramatic, hilarious, ridiculous thing because it didn't seem like work to me. So I went to college for music and, and uh, ended up uh, moving to L.A. I'm from Ohio originally. Uh, moved to L.A. and I uh, did absolutely could not get arrested for one year to the day. And then I got a job as a music editor at um, a place called Lada Productions. And, and they were like the top of the heap. They did all the television or like half the television and half the feature films in Hollywood. So my first real job was the music editor on St. Elsewhere, a TV show back in the early 80s. Mm. And uh, it was with a, the crazy thing was there were all these wild things happening at, the, at that time. You know, it was all really wild. And of course, I'm working with a Mormon composer. It's about <laughs> as wild as it doesn't get. <laughs> Uh, which was great training, though, because he was a super guy, and uh, it was it was like I was nurtured into this business. I was the luckiest person on the planet, but that it, it wasn't. It turned out to be not a really difficult job, and so as they kind of my employers kind of saw that I could handle the more difficult jobs, um, I started doing some feature films, and Gary Lamel, who was at I, I first met at Columbia, then he went to Warner's, hired me because I was kind of the young rock and roll kid, hired me to work with Michael Kamen uh, on Lethal Weapon, said you guys would be perfect together. And that became, you know, my life for the next 20 some years. Mm -hmm. I did all of Michael's, mostly all of Michael's films. I guess there was one in there that Steve did that I didn't. And then we met and we were, you know, pretty much inseparable as well. Uh, it was kind of he and I, it was us against them and them was Michael and the orchestra and us was Steve and I. <laughs> it was kind of, a, you know, a kind of an unfair battle, but uh, it was always good fun. And uh, it was like being in a band as Michael used to refer to us. Uh, we went all over the world, did all kinds of uh, crazy things and scored fantastic films. Um, and then eventually I met um, these two characters. We met, but actually I think Bob, the first time we met was on. Um, Alien uh, 3. Was probably, I guess it was Alien 3, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. it was Alien 3. And then 
the first time I was really aware of you, I think, was because my role in Alien 3 was pretty, was pretty minimal. Would have been on uh, in, uh, Interview with the Vampire. Which it, it, it would have been De Demolition Man was, was a year before Interview. Oh, it was? Oh, I thought it was, I thought it was uh, the other way around. But regardless, I certainly remember you on Interview with a Vampire because you didn't sleep for about two weeks. Yes, I was a uh, vampire. It, it was insane. Uh, we had, we, it was a rescore, and we had no time, and it was a ton of music. Um, and so then I began working with Elliot on, uh, as well on uh, Alien 3. And to this day, my last, well, one of my last features was with Elliot and Julie. So it's... Uh, it's it's definitely all been interwoven throughout the years. There you go. Yeah, I'm definitely getting that sense as I'm hearing about all of these intersections. Yeah, I think actually they they uh, Bob and Chris brought me in to do some work with uh, with Elliot on a few of those of those big movies back in those days. Can't oh, yeah. that's Don't right. Remember which ones? But one of the the, the, the bat. Yeah, the two. At least the two Batman movies, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's even more interwoven than you think. <laughs> Very much so. Well, last but not least, Steve. Right. Well, we better get to 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> well, <laughs> as quick as I can. The, the next, the next the, edition of the film might be in production by the time yeah, this conversation already. ends. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing, right? In my kitchen, there's a 101 Dalmatians mug that was given away at the premiere at the Albert Hall in London. And it's still almost in pristine condition because they clearly don't make, and we've used it for the last sort of 25 years. So they obviously don't make swag like they used to. <laughs> anyway, so, but I started out as a sort of drummer in a punk band. Then I worked my way up from T-Boy to engineer at a small studio. And then I got hired by some, uh, by composer called Jeff Wayne, who wasn't very quick at writing music, but he bought all the synths in London. And that was when they weren't very well known. And I, I sort of was so bored, I kind of learned how they all worked. <laughs> so one day somebody said, well, you're the only other person apart from me, it was Kendall Wright, and Chris, you know, that knows how a Kurzweil 250 works. Will you go meet this guy? because he wants somebody to record it. So I went along there, and uh, it was like a nice sunny afternoon. The door was opened by an, a guy called Ed Shermer, who was Michael's assistant at the time, mm. who became a significant composer. I went in, Michael was sitting with Ridley Scott, and they were looking at a film called Someone to Watch Over Me. And when I saw that first piece of music with the film, I thought, this is for me. I like this whole idea. So I somehow winged it for a while. And I did a couple of pictures with Michael. And then I met Chris. And I was quite scared of meeting Chris. Because I thought he's going to be the guy who knows actually what he's doing. <laughs> and I'm going to get busted at that point. But luckily, Chris sort of did know what he was doing. But wasn't mean enough to bust me. And then we were sort of together after that in you were know, like cellmates I suppose you would say <laughs> so but anyway that was that and we went through all those kind of things and I remember <clears throat> with with Robert I remember <clears throat> actually the first picture that we did together was Golden Gate 
on YouTube. Yes. That was an incredible experience. It was my first experience of actual sort of textual music in a certain way. It was the score was written so quietly. It was like the Durifle record where it never really got above double P. <laughs> and in fact, we ended up, we had a small string section and a couple of flutes and a clarinet. We were in Abbey Road Studio One. We ended up with those flutes and clarinet like literally at the back door, <laughs> like 60 sort of meters from the overheads. And I thought, I'm going to follow these guys because they're smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, great. and then, then we, you know, we all cross fertilized, I suppose. And then Robin Hood, Chris and I, I suppose, were, were responsible for running the traffic of the different orchestrators. And there were quite a few on Robin Hood. And, you know, that was a fun thing. But I remember bringing you and Bob, Robert, to the uh, Three Musketeers project. And Michael didn't get it. He didn't understand that it was, that you could just sort of be part of the team and you weren't like a big other guy. And you know, <laughs> right. I remember you were just frustrated because he was giving you like clerical jobs. And then one day you wrote a chart for the coach chase, I think it was, or maybe it was the sword fight, but I can't remember. It was one of those. And Michael looked at it when you weren't around. He went, see, like, I mean, this is what I'm talking about. This will never play. This will never sound like a good piece of orchestra <laughs> music, right? And then, Chris, you'll remember this. And it, I'm sorry, I swear, we played it and it came right off the page and it was utterly yeah. brilliant. And after that, Michael was like, all right, I'm sold. <laughs> it was really a, a kind of road to Damascus for Michael. And of course he worked with you ever after. Anyway, Just a piece yeah. of trivia, uh, Brad actually orchestrated the coach chase. Yeah, yes. uh, which was abs was brilliant, and totally which was brilliant. also sold Michael. But I think that was the uh, sword fight. Sword that, fight uh, was the other. Yeah. One. It was the sword fight. Yeah, yeah. and it, it didn't look like much on the page, and it was brilliant. Both of them just yeah. came off yeah. the page like I amazing. Know. I have to, the, I have to jump in on the on the on the coach chase because yeah. that that was I as I said I had only done one cue on on Robin Hood, and I did a few things you know subsequently. But then we came in to the to do musketeers yeah and and i walked in and chris kind of out, looking out the corner of his eye to <laughs> to steve and to michael says uh, so you want to do some orchestrating do you <laughs> <laughs> and i went well yeah that's why i'm here <laughs> so so they handed me that thing and uh you know Five days later, I came traveling in with uh, notes on a page. <laughs> on it was it was basically that. six minutes of Beethoven's Ninth. Yeah. Well, does anyone remember yeah. how it went? Because I do. I do. Dum ba dum, dum 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 ba dum, dum ba dum. That's it. That's that one, right? Yeah, that's the one. That's yeah. Right. yeah. It was a great. It was a great little moment that I did. I referenced in a, in another interview that I did not long ago. There, there was a thing where the, it builds up and it's just going dun 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 just kind of vamping for a minute there. Yeah. And it felt like it needed to hit there. And I noticed that the, in the film, there was a gunshot right there. It was this big puff of smoke. So I went dun 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 And I thought, you know, this is probably dumb and they're probably going to hate it and they'll throw it out. And that's that. 
But uh, we played it and Michael saw it with the picture and he laughed right out loud when he saw it. He says, that's great. He said, I love that. So uh, you never know. You never do know. But, but both of those, I remember that was a kind of, that picture was a pretty good experience. Am I right, Chris? I thought it was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As, Definitely. As was 101 Dalmatians, which right. we are ostensibly yes, talking one. about. Oh, that. It was direct, which was directed by the same man. Same director, yeah. yeah. So, tangential anesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Steve Herrick, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I love when everything crystallizes and uh, we reach that uh, point of everything coming together. And uh, I think this would be a good time to transition over to Dalmatians because it's very clear that you all had your own connections to Michael Kamen. And I guess I'm wondering, and this is really for anybody to answer, so feel free to chime in. But can you talk about maybe just the origins of the tone behind Dalmatians in terms of the music coming together? I know with a variety of different productions, the score sometimes comes in very late in the game. Other times it can, you know, work alongside the development of, um, of the script and the film. It just really depends. But in terms of Dalmatians, how did, in your respective roles and, and in working with Michael Kamen, how, how did that tone of both the playfulness and whimsy complemented by this just really rich and lush and lovely score mixed with jazz. There's a lot of different flavors in Dalmatians. How did, a very broad question, but how did, it, how did it all come to fruition? Chris, you probably can set it up as far as where, what that timeline would Yeah, I was gonna say, Marty Crystal is probably the, yeah, who you need to be talking to. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, it we was, all remember the puppies thing. Right. And, and that is a question of mine later, so feel free to go for it. <laughs> so, Bob, um, you want to describe the puppies instrument, or should I? Oh, the puppies instrument was a, was a, a, a very arcane clarinet called the A-flat clarinet. Yeah. And we all know the B-flat clarinet is the sort of everyday clarinet, and then there's one higher than that, that's an E-flat clarinet. That is usually the highest clarinet anybody ever sees. But Marty was a, a, a clarinet specialist and he had this little tiny A-flat clarinet that was even higher than the E-flat. And it was, it was like a, a clarinet out of a jack-in-the-box, you know? Yes, it was like <laughs> a, a little toy clarinet. Yeah, really. yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure where, I, I'm, I'm not sure where it came in in terms of the, the writing of the score, but Certainly, he had, I think Michael himself was, you know, that A-flat clarinet is so amazing, it's got to be the pup 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 <laughs> instrument. <laughs> and, and, and Michael, being clarinet-averse, yeah, uh, that, was say, that was really saying something. That's yeah. true. He oh, referred yeah, he to the clarinet the generally as the misery stick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> Yes. Actually, actually, am I right that, that uh, Musketeers had no clarinets? No clarinets. No clarinets Absolutely. in any of our orchestras, except really? for bass clarinets. Really? Oh, no. okay. like, that's not strictly true. Well, it's not. Well, I mean, not, uh, no, it's not. That guy, John Clark, wasn't it? He, that's Oboe. John Oboe. That's Oboe. Didn't he also play? Who's the guy that played all those instruments? Yeah, John played all those instruments, but like not planet, clarinet on any of Michael's scores that I know of. Who played like alto sax on Wilder Natom, wasn't it? That could have been John. 
Yeah. Michael liked him because he was a bit of an all rounder. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. he also, yeah, he Back also liked day, his oboe playing. Oh, he was a wonderful oboe player. Yeah. yeah. He was one of those dudes that was, he could pick up pretty much anything. Yeah. You yeah. told me a story once, Chris, about the guy that learned any instrument and he didn't much like the bassoon. So I play everything but the bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so John, oh, and John played rock and roll too. He played with uh, with uh, Loggins and Messina oh, and the Seals and Crofts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a he was the guy. So, to I have a memory of remember me and you just translating puppies into Morse code. <laughs> remember that for the no. roof on the roof. No, I don't remember that. I, I'm glad I'm here. Now we have to hear the story. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, we, what it was, was the pair of us translated, I can't remember what it was. It might have, it can't have just been puppies. That's too obvious. But it was something like that for a cue called the wolf on the roof. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the wolf on the yes, roof. Yes. That's right. And, the roof, yes. and it was in the marimba. Or something. Oh, it was a Morse yeah. code saying, it was where a, are the puppies? Or where are the puppies? Uh, no. Rogue, rescue. Yeah, where are the puppies? It was where very are the puppies? Oh, are the puppies? internet yeah. days. Right. The dogs were, were shouting it out all to all the other dogs. Oh, right. Like, That's right. Yes. And we put it in Morse code. Oh, I forgot In that. Morse code. And we somehow <laughs> found that there were, it was quite primitive internet in those days, but we somehow found it on the internet. We knew Michael would like the idea, which of course <laughs> he did. And we sort of notated or in some way sort of demoed the bum, bum, You'll have to, I haven't heard the cue for 25 or 30 years. So I, don't <laughs> yeah. I think that's Even about I right. Can't remember yeah. that one. <laughs> it was over the rooftops. We, yeah. we put Morse code in there and it made Michael smile. You know, like that kind of joke. Yeah, he, he did. Yeah. He, he liked it. inside baseball. Right. <laughs> I, my, my memory of, uh, I, I was trying to think back, well, what cues did I even do on that movie? It's so long ago. But I, I remember one, there was a, uh, a scene where there was a band playing in a bandstand in, in London. In Trafalgar Square, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Playing, uh, the thing about a uh, bicycle built for two. That's it. Yeah. All oh, right. Turned into a big queue and then a crash. Yeah. And and Michael knew that my affinity for band music. Uh, my father was a band teacher, and uh, you know I've always loved band music, and uh, so he said you should do this one, and it was really fun. I mean, it it, it was like just kind of take that song and do what you need to do with it and uh it was cool I, I really enjoyed that well and also just to a nice illustration of like because oftentimes in in film where you know we're watching something on screen but we're not necessarily seeing people playing um the music as well but of course with that scene with you know roger and anita on the bicycles and yeah. hongo and perdita running and you, you know crashing through all those different yeah. um, sites yeah. it's right. it's a perfect culmination yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. A visual source cue, as we lovingly refer to them. Yes, that's it. When we're doing our cue sheets. <laughs> Brett, you've seen this picture much more recently than me, because I, I don't think I've ever watched it since the days we did. <laughs> I did I watch it. quite a bit of the music, oddly enough. What, and what, what, go ahead, I'm sorry. 
I'm looking up. That was 96 that we did that? 96. Yeah, the same 90. year that my son was born. Oh, yeah. I was say, same year I gave up smoking. That was my yeah, That's, that's right. right. Thank and you. I remember a couple of funny stories about that. Driving <laughs> into the studio in the morning, a Paramount Stage M is where we did that. Yeah, and right. I was coming That's in right. there and I'd given up smoking. It was a terrible mood. And I bought a packet of chewing, nicotine chewing gum. And I gruffly got it out of the packet and I had instructions. And I went, only <laughs> instructions to chew gum. Right? <laughs> I hope you can bleep it out. But, but so I, I chewed the gum for a bit. And then I started tasting really peppery and bad. And I thought, oh my God. And then suddenly I got terrible hiccups. And that was how I showed up on the first day of scoring 101 Dalmatians with awful hiccups. And I looked at the instructions and they were quite simple. Please stop chewing this gum if it gets peppery because otherwise you'll get terrible hiccups. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, all right, I'm more stupid than anybody. <laughs> I'm so, so, Steve, my question is in light of. 101 Dalmatians using really interesting touches like Morse code. Why was your hiccups not incorporated into yeah. the score? You know what? I need to go back and incorporate them. They are. You have to find them. They there was some are in there somewhere. Do you remember Billy Connolly showing up at the scoring stage? Chris, do you remember that? Vaguely, yes. The comedian Billy Connolly yeah. came yeah. and hung out for a bit. He was very funny. I enjoyed the conversation, but it's too rude to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was very negative about a certain right wing British politician. There was a woman called Margaret Thatcher. We'll save that for our other podcast. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the political one that we don't. Sorry. <laughs> there. There is a tune in uh, uh, just a little motif that's actually in all of Michael's, uh, nearly all of Michael's oh, scores. That's and right. And it is in it's in 101 Dalmatians pretty prominently. It's just a little uh, chromatic thing. Do 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 do. Right. But um, that one. It, yeah, that one. <laughs> so we had a guy write us, uh, write Michael, and he gave it to me. And Steve and I read this letter, and it was some nutcase, and he. F- thought that he had found an, a motif in all of Michael Kamen's music and he had done all of this thorough research and he had written out what he thought it was with some triplet figure and, and it, it may have you know in passing been there but it was certainly not intentional and so I said okay I'm going to write this guy back and I, I wrote him an email or maybe even a letter I think maybe at that time and I said well the good news is that there is a motif through all of Michael's music. The bad news is you haven't found it. <laughs> oh, wow. But was it. Yeah, in fifths, down in the low in the bass. That's right, yeah. He had to jam it in there anyway. It, it was everywhere, but but uh, the guy hadn't figured it out, and it was a it was an homage, it was a a nod actually, a wink and a nod to James Guthrie from from some James session Guthrie. on Pink Floyd. He suggested it. James suggested, "Why don't you go <laughs> in the middle of this really diatonic, like majory thing?" Yeah. Hey, why not? 
But Michael always put all those kind of stuff, that stuff in there. You know, it, everything was a private joke. Well, not everything, but there were very, very many. And me and you, Chris, were experienced in most of them and saw how they somehow made it from a stupid joke on the cards while into like the big screen in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I wasn't there for the first two um, diehards, but um, I played on the second one, but I, I wasn't behind the scenes. So I don't know where the, the idea of having the character John represented by when Johnny comes marching home. <laughs> that was actually the director's idea. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. The yeah. first Die Hard is really a masterpiece of that. I mean, it's a masterpiece in general. It really is a, one of the most amazing scores Michael ever did. But yeah. he'd spent a lot of time on it, orchestrated almost all of it himself. Do you remember, mm -hmm. Chris? Yeah, yeah. It was. And they bailed out at the last reel hmm. because he, yeah. he didn't realise that the guy could come back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> and he, no, the film's done now. It's like, no, it might not be done. But anyway, <laughs> he decided not to write a tune at all for it. And he right. said, I'm going to make it all out of Singing in the Rain, Walking in a Winter Wonderland, Beethoven's Ninth, Let It Snow, uh, Happy Trails to You. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. there's a couple others. And, and Let and It Snow. snow. Don't let's let never, let never forget no, Let It Snow. Of course. <laughs> 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 one where the black cop shows up and a body <laughs> lands. Let's let it snow in a minor key. <laughs> <laughs> but that was what was great about when Michael was up for it and he was making people laugh. He also made great music that made people laugh. So yeah. Die Hard worked perfectly that way because it seemed like an action picture, but it was also a comedy. And the music really supported that. Mm. Well, I yeah, and I think what you're hitting on there too, Steve, is just the notion of Michael's scores being very intricate too. And I guess I'm wondering, um, I guess this first question would be more directly targeted for Robert and Brad, but uh, please feel free to chime in, whoever, in terms of being able to translate, you know, how, how did you, uh, I'm trying to think of how to put this succinctly, were there any challenges that you faced in handling the orchestration for Dalmatians? I realized there... None, none whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> There were two. There were two. There were two kinds of orchestrators that worked for Michael. The ones who got who, who totally understood where he was coming from, and 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 it was a delight to work with him. And the ones who totally didn't get where he was coming from and made a huge mess of things. Mm -hmm. And for those of us, and and I, I would also echo. You know, Michael's sense of humor, musical sense of humor, is something that we all appreciated it. it's one thing that we all loved about working with Michael and if you weren't that if you weren't into uh, sort of in that frame of mind then you it was hard to sort of figure out what he was what he was about and I you know I saw multiple really good orchestrators you know do cues that just were you know didn't work at all you know yeah you really you had to get it and Michael didn't make it that easy to get it. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair to say. Yes. 
until he did. I mean, the, I, I don't need to speak for you, Bob, but the one thing that I did see with Michael once he kind of accepted you into the fold was uh, a shorthand uh, that he didn't have with everybody. He had it with you and he had it a little bit with Bill Ross. But it, he could Brad. just look at Bob uh, and Brad. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And he would just, you know, say this little bit here is, uh, you know, uh, Mahler's first. And this is, a, imagine this is a little bit of Brahms and, and that sort of thing. And he knew that you guys got that. Yeah. And so he didn't have to go into great detail about what he wanted. And he right. got and it back. The other thing Michael was famous for was really dodgy sketches. I mean, <laughs> I mean, incredibly <laughs> difficult Except, to decipher sketches. Remember, remember, Except. Remember the patch? <laughs> yeah, uh, the harp. Strings and harp. The harp and, the harp and strings patch. Strings and harp, yeah. Yeah, this is back yeah, before. Spoke two yeah, seconds the, Bob, than the harp. Robert, I'm sorry, Robert, the, the best example of a dodgy sketch that I ever heard in my life, and it's really brilliant, was when you were working with Elliot and you were doing a picture called SWAT. We're oh. all there, right? And I remember this briefing that Tisco and you were all sitting around, pencils in hand and that. And here was Elliot's sketch for a cue. It was one of those sort of loops that is on the keyboard. So it played. <laughs> and Tisco was looking at you going, get that bit? Yeah, yeah, I know what that is. And two days later, it was being played by a massive orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot's sketches were much worse than Michael's, yeah, but we still true. all knew what they were saying, right? No, that's no, that's that's absolutely true. Elliot, at least Michael used to write to a click. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait! No, no, no. Sometimes <laughs> Michael wrote to a click. Sometimes <laughs> Michael wrote to me, and it ended up with a click. Oh, well, yes, that's that. I have to, I have to say, I certainly give you credit for for not only for Michael but also for Elliot. And, and then when, when once you had put the click in there, we would go in to record it. We, re, we would read it down once with the click, and then he would say, turn the clicks off. I don't want to read yeah. it. And then the nightmare began again. <laughs> <laughs> but there is one exception to the, um, to the messy, uh, indecipherable sketch, uh, which happened on uh, twice, but on 101 Dalmatians was one of the two examples. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael uh, was not much for sequencers and stuff. Steve and I did a lot of that work. Um, but he did discover one tool, little used tool uh, in Performer that they had just introduced, uh, which was the note, the, the manuscript page, the note page, where he could literally paint in notes. At first key. Right. The transcribe, yeah. And, yeah, and he would paint them in and then play it back at some ridiculous tempo and then <laughs> hand that to these guys and they had to make an orchestra play it. Oh my gosh. And it was brilliant, but it was very, uh, it wasn't a messy sketch. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> it was wasn't just all 16th notes. It was all 16th notes and it was all, yeah, it was all very lined up and, and clear, but it didn't often bear that much relationship to what instruments actually had to play in order to, no, it was very academic, that whole thing. But then we used to start playing them on those Yamaha player pianos. Oh, yeah. And the oh, whole yeah. Of Jack was 
Jack. Yeah, Jack. Right. And, and in, in uh, Mr. Holland's Opus as well, there was yeah. some of that. And that guy, what was his name? George, I think in Seattle, played it. <laughs> and we're like, you can't play that. And he played it. It was like, <laughs> ridiculous. They also told me about Die Hard. One of the guys in Seattle, where we did Die Hard 3, against our will, really, to be honest, yeah. that the percussionist there had learned the little bell tree riff that was a Kurtzwell thing that went ding, 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 and the pits goes It was like a big motif in Die Hard. That percussionist learned it, weirdly. And which was, it was two or three notes on the Kurtzweil that Michael played and then made a loop of, and this guy learned it. It was incredible. Who knew that Die Hard would be such a, like, kind of iconic piece of work? Oh, it was a B-movie when we did it. Oh, yeah. I had the most terrifying night of my life on that movie. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was the, the next day was going to be the last day. And uh, I think it was just a single morning session, as I recall. But um, Michael said, you know, one thing we've not done for this is just have a straight-ahead arrangement of When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Oh, yeah. The orchestra to play he said, would you be interested in doing that? And I'm going like, what, like for next week? <laughs> 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 no, for tomorrow morning. Right. Uh, oh, so, uh, <laughs> so I, it's one of those things where you don't have time to question it. You just put your head down and it's like, there, there's kind of no risk because if it's awful, it's like, well, what did you expect? <laughs> you know? Right. But it, uh, it played it down. It sounded okay to me. And it, it wound up becoming the end title for the, picture as it turned out so that was nice cool. one trend that one trend that i've noticed in, in talking with fellow musicians and composers often when they have to step in to a picture late in the game or as you were just sharing there in terms of having limited time to to handle something is often the greatest creativity and experimentation emerges from being under pressure and mm -hmm. that result can in many cases be quite um quite transformative for the tone of the film as well. Oh, yes. And that's something that, that is another thing that you had to be able to do with, when you work with Michael was work under pressure. You know, do things at the last minute, do things overnight, and, you know, just sort of take it in stride. And if you were one of these people who just sort of worked from nine to five and then you hung up your pen, you know, that's, that, wasn't, that wasn't the vibe. <laughs> good, good thing we never had to do that with Brian, right? Yeah, right. Good, good thing. Every other composer is like, no, it was good training, in fact, for, yeah. for a film, for the film composing career, or film orchestrating career, yeah. is having to have that incredible turnaround. Yeah. Well, and, and some of them, some of it was certainly Michael, uh, 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 you know, uh, procrastinating and, and whatnot. But a few of those times on Three Musketeers and Robin Hood uh, were both uh, absolute last minute. I mean, we had no time on either of those. I mean, they, they, the director waived his cut on Three Musketeers when it got home because they had a release date and it was some ridiculous time. I mean, we spot as the day after they got back from shooting in Europe, we spotted. And then yeah. it was in the theaters like six weeks later or something. It was really ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, there was a 
as yep. well. There's a kind of thing that I think needs to be corrected, which is like Robin Hood was done in a quite a short period of time. So Michael used a lot of orchestrators. And Chris, me and you ran the pass, as it were, for those guys. We gave them a takedown and we gave yep. them a video. We gave them a cassette. But nothing. Gave them a recording. None, none of the music in Robin Hood, none of it was anything other than Michael's music. It was all. He wrote every note of that picture. Oh, yeah. right, other right. people sort of said that somehow they contributed to the compositions, but I just think that that's not true. And, you know, I, I didn't think he got the credit he deserved for that score. Right, because word got around that certain, some, some people were saying things out of right. turn. Yeah, yes. well, there was one guy, and, and he was the guy who who orchestrated two cues for us, and one of them hit the back wall wholesale, and the other one had to be rewritten on the stand for about two hours. Mm. Uh, we did use loads of orchestrators, but it, that yeah. did I don't think that, it, you know, what Michael had his thing, and if you were working with him, you sort of did his thing. You know, he didn't really phone it in, in the way that, Sometimes other composers might. I mean, well, he did, but not on Robin Hood. You know, it was really all his work. And was yeah, was he loved really that. Sad. He loved that whole project, yeah. didn't he? I mean, he, he did. Uh, and when a, you watch was... it now, you know, I've got a friend who's like a top singer of Britain's top rock and roll band. And a couple of months ago, he sent me a text and it was just like Morgan Freeman. He went, we're all settled in for the night now. You know, it's a quite well-loved, even though it's terribly flawed. And, but it's very well-loved. <laughs> I mean, and the score is a genius score. It really makes you feel good. I, yeah. heard, I heard a story that uh, when he was approached, said that we're doing a movie of Robin Hood, would you like to score it? And, and he said, I've been scoring that picture for years. <laughs> 20, 20 years, yeah. yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, yeah. That, this was, that, was a, that was a definitely a labor of love for him. I, I wanted to add, too, because this, I remember it specifically in the Robin Hood context, but Michael was a brilliant improviser. And, uh, you know, when you ask, how can you come up with that much music in, in you know, like, how can you come up with 130 minutes of music in two weeks, you know, well. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I remember times when he watching him sit down and it's like, how long is it going to take you to write a four minute cue? Well, it's going to take you from when you start playing it. To four minutes. It's going to take four minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's right. Uh, I saw some incredibly beautiful cues come out that way. I mean, up at the chapel, I remember sitting and just watching him say, OK, just give me a minute. I just want to work out this cue. And it was like played it through once and there it was. It was done. <laughs> no, he was brilliant at that because he was great at being in the moment, but he also had a lot of, like I think a lot of composers do, he had a lot of tunes running around his brain. Uh -huh. And it's like maybe this one will work for this if I play it at this tempo. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. but yeah. he was so great at doing that. And of course, it was all on harp and strings, but we knew what he meant. <laughs> well, I mean, well, that's just sounded that's vaguely like an orchestra. Well, that's sort of that's what I was talking about. Is you had to be able to imagine what it would sound like when it's actually played by the orchestra. And some people, you know, I, I think we all shared that 
that ability. Yeah, yeah. we did. Well, that's something that's called orchestrating, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and the one thing is that, that he was a great orchestrator, which we've we've left yes, out was. to this point. Yes, and I remember walking in one day in London to his studio, and uh, he was writing, and I said, "You, you, let's go to dinner." And he goes, "No, I can't. I've got an orchestra in my head." And what he meant was that he was in the zone, you know, he was orchestrating and he had to keep going because he was hearing everything in his head and he was just writing it down as fast as he possibly could. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I he, think it's, it's important. It's important. Chris, you should, you can talk to the, speak to this, that he used to orchestrate everything himself. And then what, there was a point at which you guys introduced him to the idea of their, of having something orchestrated. Well, it, it was because, uh, again, it was it was always because of a time crunch. And the first time he ever used an orchestra orchestrator was on Lethal Weapon because they had said to him they wanted this sort of bluesy rock and roll approach with Dave Sanborn and Eric Clapton. And he had recorded all this stuff. And what they really meant was they wanted a traditional uh, action score with a little taste of that in it. Okay. And so he had to sort of start over with only a couple of weeks left. So uh, or uh, orchestrators were brought in to help him get through that. Well, he still he, orchestrated a bunch of it. He said to me, it was like, it was a question of like, am I going to die? Or am I going to just hire some people and tell them what I want? Yeah, you know, and yeah exactly. The, the amount of delegation that Michael did is nowadays would be seen as the sort of most minimal. Yeah, there we go. A lot of people that just have everybody else just writes the stuff and they give them a mood board and they correct it when it isn't right. But Michael was certainly capable of writing every note of it and also yeah. capable of recognizing when other people got it and could do his music without him having to sort of die. You know, it was like the story was like that. A lot of work was piled on us back then and it was all bricks and mortar. There was no just printing out the MIDI and putting it in front of the yeah. musicians. Which Wait, is, yeah, like you can now, right? right? It used to have to be all written out. So yeah. um, I don't blame it. It was all pencil and paper when I remember when we, well, on, on, on uh, Musketeers, uh, you, you guys all remember that, that Michael's preliminary work on that was to create a, a, a sort of a 17th century keyboard sort of 16th, no, 17th century keyboard suite. Uh, yeah. And right. the, the like, for example, the coach chase was called a brawl. Yes, that's right, And it really was sounded like something that Rameau would have written, you know, except it was Michael Kamen. And right. many of the cues uh, revolved around. In fact, the the coach chase was really that piece. Uh, yeah, almost unadulterated. It laid it, in. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was, was laid in. It was written out by hand. And uh, you guys had already made some notes about how, how, you know, when you have to jump from this section to that section, but it was, it was basically just a keyboard piece that right. was uh, very complete. Um, it was just like make a, make a 17th century keyboard piece sound like a 20th, 20th century big orchestra piece. And that was that. <laughs> and, and, and you had to be somebody who could do that. And nowadays, you know, or, uh, orchestrators are presented with, with a mock-up that's so detailed, it's, you know, there's not a whole lot of, of imagining. No. 
that you have to do anymore. Copying. Yeah, I mean, it isn't really, I mean, and certainly I work at a, these days at a much more lower budget level and stuff, but there isn't really any, you know, by the time the sketch is done, we've got what we want and we yeah. don't really need it to be reinvented. Although yeah, right. I would love it if I could work in those old days again, because it, the music would be better. But, uh -huh. that, you know, it isn't, it's just not possible now. Yeah, you know, they just aren't asking for that. Yeah. A terrible pity. Yeah, it's it's kind of a shame. What I'm appreciating and and what you all are saying is not only the visionary that Michael was, but also the versatility and how that also had you know ramifications and implications for for everybody on his team to really deliver and and fire on all cylinders and. I think what you're sharing is that that very much came through in terms of the end product of the scores that you all collectively worked on. And, and as a listener, I think uh, 101 Dalmatians is, is certainly uh, very representative of that. And even, even in the earliest moments of the film, if you think back to the soundtrack, when you just see the opening titles before eventually you see Pongo wake up uh, Roger, it's very bombastic and exciting and just beautiful <laughs> orchestra. And then there's like a little bit of playfulness and whimsiness with, you know, him setting the shower up and, and uh -huh. just getting the milk and like, and, and those oh, yeah. playful touches that, that Michael incorporated and certainly you all carried out in your roles too. It's very much integrated and explicit that there's such a sense of uh, attention to detail and thoughtfulness and how the score comes through. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a really good point is, is one of the things that must be said about Michael is that he was one of those rare people who, had, who could bridge both the pop music world and classical music world. He, got, he was trained as a classical oboist and was, you know, he, he orchestrated his own scores. He was very familiar with what the orchestra could do. Um, yeah, he was a he was a wonderful musician, to, to a performer. I mean, it like I remember he, seeing him once in a while. We'd pick up an oboe up at the chapel and just play, and it was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> this dude can play. And you, I, you remember he would go and sit at the piano in the main house there and just play Bach. And yeah, it was like wow. It's like listening to Giza King playing Bach. You know, it was like listen to this. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was very very special. It was. I've, and I've, I've been in trouble for turning the oboe up too loud in yeah. every mix I've ever done since then. But <laughs> I, I do like the oboe <laughs> a lot. Always <laughs> have. Yeah, and, and it was it was huge. I think we had five oboes for Three Musketeers, something like that. You can never have too many oboes, right? Yeah, it was it was fantastic. Well, they had to outnumber the clarinet. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, and he made, I think he made a big deal out of saying this is the 17th century. They had no clarinets back then. Yeah. <laughs> Remember fun. that big queue at the end of 101 Dalmatians? It's got like, I mean, like I say, I haven't seen it or listened to it for a long, long time. But it's sort of, I can play it back in my head even now, that big sweeping melody. It's really lovely tune, that. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, you got it, Steve. Don't see too shining. See, it was a great tune. I'm gonna have to listen to that now. 
yeah, yeah. I, go ahead i'm sorry yeah no, no i was gonna say i think i kind of remember that being the wedding cue or i remember i remember a big sweeping melody that he wrote for their wedding yes that was i think we reused it in a sort of better version right at the end but right. i'll go and check in a minute okay <laughs> yeah it was it was repurposed and that's a nice thing too that i wanted to kind of uh praise you all on is what what was what's really beautiful about the score as well is that those certain themes and motifs are reused in a variety of ways at different points in the film and and we talked at the kind of the onset of our discussion of Dalmatians about the pup 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 puppies theme like that's that's used in a variety of inventive ways with with various instruments all throughout the score depending on you know what scene is um and mind you i know that's a certainly a trait that's inherent in scores in terms of those motifs being Yes, but that's, I mean, that's just brilliant. Well, there's only so much A-flat clarinet you can listen to. You know? <laughs> right. You have to move little. it around a little bit. It was, it's very spicy. But it, 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 do I remember correctly that um, Phil Ayling came in with an oboe that was like an F that was a, an octave above an English horn? Do you, did I, is my old brain making this up or was there, did that happen? I, I don't remember that. I don't remember that either. Yeah, yeah. I did something like that on Robin Hood. Maybe. Uh, oh, maybe Robin Hood. Uh, yeah. it, we have to make sure that that credit, all due credit, is given to Chris and Steve, who are the masters of repurposing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, in terms of in terms of making the themes uh, appear in different parts of the movie, and and having it and having the movie be thematic, they were just masters at finding a. At, hearing a cue and saying, this cue would sound great here. And all we need is a little, you know, a two bar transition or something. Yeah, yeah Michael sometimes needed a bit of help with that. Right. But we also learned it from a master. He was a real genius with that. The, yeah, he, 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 the post-it note theory of, uh, of uh, creating themes. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, we're great. The, 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 there was another thing about 101 Dalmatians that was a little different than our, um, I mean, we constantly were reinventing the wheel and trying to figure out different ways of doing things. And we were all young and had a lot of energy. So uh, <laughs> on that one, it was very compartmentalized. I remember geographically compartmentalized. So I was in the guest house, which we called the dog house because nobody, no guests ever stayed in there. Only the dogs slept in there. And Steve was in the studio and Michael was in his studio and it was very compartmentalized about like that. And we would just kind of come to work and do our things. And, and it was, it was, it was organized. It was very organized and far more organized than we often got. Uh, and that, that's sort of how the score is in a way as well. Um, but the, can I tell a, a, a not an off color, but a sort of an off topic story that did happen during 101 Dalmatians. In, in, in my little doghouse was a kitchen, a little kitchenette. And I went to the store one day and Stephen and I have had for years by that point, a running bet. We would, there would be some, we didn't have Google. So we would make these ridiculous bets. He'd say it was so and so and the saying such and such and I would say no 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 it wasn't and uh and we would bet a bottle of Gurgich Hills just mainly because Scottish <laughs> Steve liked to say Gurgich Hills 
And so, I still do, but I have no opportunity these days. So, every once in a while, we would bet that, and one of us would have to go get a bottle of Gurgit Chills or the other. Well, it was tap. I happened to lose this particular time, and I was at the local wine store and I bought a bunch of stuff like you know, sodas, and and uh, I bought a bottle of Gurgit Chills. At this particular wine shop, they had a cabinet that had sort of one-offs. And I looked at this bottle and I went, that looks like Silver Oaks. And I pulled it out and it was a 1979 Cabernet Sauvignon from Silver Oaks. Mm. And I took it up to the thing and I said, you're going to you're gonna have to look this up. It, it, it was in this cabinet. And I knew the wine buyer from there and I knew that she had this book of this stuff. And I told the guy and then I went back and, and when I got the Gurgit Chills, the guy was, you know, was, joking around with me that it was so expensive and i said oh don't worry about it it's a bat and i'll get more of those back it'll be fine and he kept not looking up this one i said no no no, you have to look that up and he and i saw him looking around in the stacks trying to match it and he wasn't going to match it it was the only one they had and finally he goes well i'm gonna have to charge you 35 dollars for it and i said <laughs> okay if you have to for the silver <laughs> Yeah, it was like drinking velvet. Remember that, yeah. Steve? Glad you drank it. You could trade it in for a new BMW. Now. <laughs> I know, but I already had one of those from uh, from Robin Hood. Right. Uh, yeah. Yet, we, it must be said that that Michael was incredibly generous, and yeah. and I have to say the certainly the best wine experiences I've ever had <laughs> has been dining out with Michael, who would you know buy like the best bottles of wine. And he, he was didn't so drink wine though. He didn't yeah, drink he it, didn't. but he liked to buy it. He liked to he order liked it. To buy it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael was the, uh, the, you know, the musicians adored Michael. He, he was like one of them. They knew it. He knew it. He always had that beautiful twinkle in his eye, even when things were getting difficult. And uh, everybody adored Michael. And, uh, and it was mutual. And at the end of every, uh, the last session of every movie, there would be cases of not just regular old champagne, of Dom Perignon, every, yeah. every movie. And it was like, you did, we'd all have a, a taste or five. And, and then as people <laughs> were leaving, you'd say, take a bottle home with you. Take a couple, but take one home for your wife. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, uh, and that was every movie that we ever did with him. Yeah. So, uh, incredibly generous. In including person. at his memorial at Fox. Right, right. That's right. Right. Wow. Well, cheers, Michael. Yeah, cheers, <laughs> Michael. We're all so raising we, our virtual glasses to Michael yeah, right yeah, now. Yes, we are. We are. Well, let's let's start to to wrap things up because I certainly want to be mindful of everybody's time. Before I ask you all some um, Disney music related opinion questions that we can handle pretty efficiently. Thinking about Dalmatians, we've we've talked, and and certainly Michael Kamen, who we've talked about in, in great depth here. If if you could each think of a few words that kind of represent your experience on the project, your interpretations of the end product of the soundtrack, the score, what are what words would those be? It's a very deep question. It's like a Barbara Walters question of like, what type of tree are you? So charming. Charming, yeah. Charming is good. Um, I, I, my uh, 
too long answer is going to be that uh, I, I want to reference one other movie that we did with Michael that, that to me was the other one that had the same kind of heartfelt charm and sincerity to it and, and just was a delightful score was the score for Jack. Um, mm. it, the, the smallest score that we ever worked on, it was a tiny little orchestra, uh, a, a small film, but the music, uh, you guys I'm sure remember, it was absolutely delightful. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a long story, that one. That's a very long story. That was involving that a toy store. <laughs> and that's something for another day. Yeah. yeah, another episode. You know, for me, the 101 Dalmatians was just, you know, Michael sort of at his most melodic, mm -hmm. like kind of, it was something that he, he liked the director, he liked the picture, and so he wrote a lot of good tunes for it, and we all kind of did our thing. That's how it felt. I think it's the chord that it struck with him is because it was his girls were young enough that could still enjoy that sort of film, and he loved doing things that he knew his kids kids would love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like so was seven at the time, so it was exciting. I, I, I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, he would definitely. And and the other part about this that we haven't mentioned is the uh, uh, is the is the Mac Rebenak song where Mac said Mac didn't know that Glenn Close was a woman. <laughs> okay. Okay. And he, he, and said, he said, and when somebody said, no, no, uh, Mac, Glenn's a woman. Oh, and she's won Academy rewards and stuff. <laughs> I remember going into Michael's office in the house there and he said, I'm on the phone with Mac Rebinick. I'm like, wait a minute, that's Dr. John you're talking about. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, oh man, tell him he's, he's telling you're sitting with his biggest fan right now because I love Dr. John. <laughs> so that was, I didn't get to meet him, but it was. Uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing to have him, to work, to work with him even virtually. He, he was incredible. Yeah. He, the early days of one of them demented chords. <laughs> That's great. So an early experience in, in creating a musical project remotely, it sounds like, for sure. Right. Uh, did Matt come to us on that one? Steve? No, it was Hudson Hawk. And he said at one point, I said, Mike, could you do it again? And he went, Steve, I'm at your disposal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like a rooster head. <laughs> All right. Well. Yeah, one one thing I remember about uh, 101 Dalmatians was that it was it was really kind of a perfect storm of Michael being in a great place mm -hmm. uh at the top of his game, working with a director that he really liked and really liked him, and also uh, on a film that he really liked. And, and it just seemed like everything was yeah, well, well, everything well, aligned. Well put, Bob. And I think the result was that was probably the easiest job we ever had of, uh, of any movie that we were. Yeah, in some ways that's true because it just flowed. Everything just yeah, flowed. I don't remember too many problems. That no, it was beautiful. And he loved, he loved working at Paramount. Mm -hmm. Paramount Stage M was a great studio. I don't yeah, know why like anybody had against it. It sounded it was, wonderful. Everybody and, said it was kind of, ah, uh, not that one. I really liked working there. We did so did I. 
did 101 Dalmatians, did, uh, I can't remember what else there, but it was a really good studio that. Was we that did Three Musketeers there. The Some of Three yeah. Musketeers there. Yeah. Was that before or after the renovation? Uh, oh, I, think, uh, I don't know. I think Dalmatians was after the renovations. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, Heat was in 95, wasn't it? Yeah. Heat was uh, 90, something like that. Something like that. Well, it, the, the first time I walked in there, it was never different from when I first came there. And I think that was Heat. So I don't know if that's after the renovations. Oh, good studio. That's right. It was very controllable. Like everything about it was good, and nobody else liked working there, so you could get in. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it was, it was the first. It was the first studio that got turned into office space. I think. Seems. Oh uh, yes, I think it might have been, and then Todd Ayo did as well, where we did yeah, right. uh, all the when we first went to Todd Ayo at Radford, that yeah. was we went in there to record the first cue on Three Musketeers. Remember that, Chris? We went in just for a yeah, few Yeah, and it had about a nine-second... Uh, it did, and that was when I bought tail. the carpet for the back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I yeah, yeah, and they laughed at you. I know they did. <laughs> a few days later, they came and paid me for the carpet. Steve, <laughs> Steve went out and got the carpet himself, and that carpet stayed on that floor exactly where it was for about five years after that. It did. Yeah. That's true. They were so down on it. We've just paid somebody to do an amazing acoustic design, and you carpet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, excuse my language. Boy, Steve, <laughs> I'm going to have such a hard time editing this because of I'm like so three F-bombs so. now. Thank you. Oh, excuse me. It's just, I'm afraid it's just, this. it's 11 o'clock at night, half past 11 at night, and I'm Scottish. You could just... <laughs> can, can you just... Uh, I have an idea for your technical suggestion, if I might, being the editor that I am. Sure, go for Every it. time Steve says... And me too. There now. Sorry. Now you've done. Just play a little bit of puppies over that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yes. I went out and That's I a good idea. Puppies. That'll keep it coming out. back to 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> I just True. find it difficult. I'm not a performer, so I find it hard to not think of this as a sort of conversation in a pub round a table. <laughs> That's the difficulty yeah. of it. Like, we, excuse me. I'm sorry about. It. Well, I do feel like we're at a pub and it's a wonderful sentiment. So all good. (laughs) That's what it was like to work with Michael in general. It was like all just being at a pub together. It was just some of the best experiences I ever had. Yes. Yeah. Except he didn't drink beer. He he detested beer. Yeah. Yeah. I have another story that I have to share. Um, My wife stopped by... uh, at Tadeo, actually, after school, um, came by to because back in those days it wasn't a big deal. You just came in, you know. There was no security or anything. And uh, my daughter, who was about five at the time, was coming actually from a dance class, and she had her little dance outfit on. And Michael, being Michael, uh, turned her. And I think we were doing Lethal Four at the time. And it was a very, things had been not going well. And there was a lot of tension in the booth. And they were like, get, let's just get this done and get out there. And it's like, this is costing them money. So Michael sees Clara in her little dance outfit. And he says, hello, who are you? <laughs> and starts a whole conversation. And he says, I, are you a dancer? And she said, yes, I come from my dance class. He said, do you know how to do the cha-cha? 
and the producers are rolling their eyes on oh, god this is costing us hundreds per minute <laughs> and very slowly he says well i'm going to teach you how to do the cha-cha <laughs> and he did <laughs> and uh, these poor producers are going oh my god <laughs> and, and he was eating it up of course so <laughs> oh my god yeah he was great with he was great with kids Oh, he loved. Yeah, he really him. was. Adored kids. Yeah, it was great. He was one himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He kind of was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, that's, that's why the music worked. Yeah, and I think that story, Brad, almost epitomizes what you all, many of you, described in terms of just the score and the experience being very charming, and that's uh, mm. certainly what I'm taking away as as a listener of your recollections there. Yeah, it's a combination of charming and total in your face, you know, like bucking the, the uh, authority at the same time, you know, it was. That it was, was bucking, by the way, you don't need to put a, a puppy in there. Yeah, there. Yes, I heard yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about the thing that, and this is especially true in 101 Dalmatians, and the reason he was able to score these films like this is that Michael was many things, and, but he wasn't cynical. No. He was no. never cynical. And that comes through in the, his honesty and, and childlike understanding comes through. And I think that's why Brad was talking about Jack is that is the same, same sentiment then in the mm -hmm. same, same sort of um, understanding from the heart that he had for films like that. He had yeah. disdain for some films. He didn't really like those big, ugly actiony films. So, so he found ways of getting through them with humor and, and uh and all of that but not cynicism yeah right yeah. well that might be a really nice note to end on um in terms of reflecting on on michael and just shifting now to our uh, last set of very much uh, more rapid fire questions in terms of uh, your opinions of different aspects of disney music and i'm hoping we can maybe do this kind of in a uh almost like single file um so maybe we'll do it alphabetically brad then chris then robert then steve Mm -hmm. um, so some questions I ask of all of my guests who are, are musicians or have a musical interest themselves, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Brad, we'll start with you. Up on the mountaintop of Tennessee, killed him a bar when he was only three. <laughs> Davy Crockett, theme for Davy Crockett. King and, of the Wild Frontier. <laughs> King of the Wild Frontier, that's it. And, and it, it was a, kind of an omnibus show, TV show, that Uncle Walt himself hosted. And uh, this was like in the 50s. So yeah, believe it or not, the 50s. And uh, so that's what I remember the most from right off the top. Lovely, wonderful. Chris, how about you? Oh, this is easy. I, it was difficult at first because I'm thinking, well, I don't remember. I mean, the Disney movies that I saw were like, you know, the, the uh, Herbie the Love Bug and, and all of that. But uh, Mary Poppins was, um, that was Disney, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Mary Poppins. <laughs> you would be exiled from this podcast I know, if you got yeah, that There wrong. would be a big pop, 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 puppies there. Uh, <laughs> Mary Poppins, because we did a, um, probably didn't pay royalties, but did a backyard performance of it when I was about, six i think or seven so that soundtrack was the first one i ever knew really wow that's awesome 
Did you play a specific role there, Chris? Have the faintest idea. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy thing is years and years later, Jeff Sherman became a friend of mine and told me, you know, personally over dinner one night, the story about the spoonful of sugar. And yes. that's amazing. Classic. Robert, how about you? Soundtrack well, you listened to most while growing up. Well, I have to say it's actually the same one that Chris listened to. Uh, I saw Mary Poppins in the theater and we got an album and I played that record many, many times. Uh, I just loved that it was so theatrical. You know, it wasn't just a, a movie with songs in it. You know, it was really music theater. And uh, there's some of the, some of the, one of the greatest moments in cinematic film history, I think, is when Mr. Banks, know, knowing he's about to be fired, walks across the square where the woman had sung um, mm. Feed the Birds, and you, and you get this massive underscoring, uh, you know, beautiful, romantic with a choir as he's walking across the square. And that is just, I mean, that has always stayed with me. Mm. You know, it's haunting it's, and, and I can imagine I can picture it right now in the moonlight and at night and you right. just kind of see a silhouette walk into the distance yeah right oh. yeah just an incredible moment you got so. it definitely some love for Mary Poppins here Steve how about you round us up with this question okay well from Mary Poppins point of view let's go fly a kite is like just such a great song but the Disney one that I mostly played and probably still do play bits of is The Jungle Book. Mm. You know, that kind of crossover. That is a Disney movie, I do hope. Yep, But it's got that crossover that they made it work, you know, back then. They got a sort of band in that did it all. And I like that kind of stuff. And the music all feels knitted together. The songs and the score feel really great together and of course who couldn't love baby of mine from dumbo <laughs> and, and, and the other one the, when i when i was a kid there was a a, a thing a french tv show it was a black and white adaptation of robinson crusoe mm. and it just has the most lovely music that's stuck in my head to this day so i kind of suppose that's my sentimental roots really there you go I, I could also imagine baby mine playing at a pub that would be an interesting paradox of well, sorts <laughs> if it played at the pubs i went to you'd get a lot of guys suddenly turning a bit tearful and go no, <laughs> not that song <laughs> Steve, how about you start us off in, uh, with the second of the three music questions. Um, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Well, most recently? Yeah. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Well, that's a, a slightly tough one because I'm, cause I'm sort of do this for a living. I'm not a great, I'm not up on modern films all that much, to be honest. I'm sorry to say. I suppose if I had the, it would Probably. be the the one from Frozen, which was pretty nice. That's a Disney movie, really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll take that one. The one about the snowman. That's a pretty good song. How did you like the French horns on that? 
the, they were the French ones were amazing. <laughs> I, I like that song a lot too. It's a very it nice song. Yeah. <laughs> Disney always are able to come up with great songs. I mean, they really are. But even the cynic in me, even the guy that goes to the pub still melts when they hear a great tune. Absolutely. Chris, over to you, same question. It doesn't have to be a recent Disney song. It just has to be a song that recently uh, got stuck in your head. Well, it's a, uh, I mean, the, the problem is that uh, the, I, I've had this happen so often because I've worked with Alan Menken. And so um, on Gallivant, uh, you know, we, I did oh, two seasons yes. of Gallivant. And I knew where I was in the show by whichever song I woke up in the morning in my head that you can't get out. I mean, he's the king of earworms. Um, But then I did uh, Beauty and the Beast, this last uh, Beauty and the Beast. And uh, again, it was the same thing. It was just, you know, whatever song I was working on that day got stuck until the next day I would play another one and then it would get stuck. And it was just impossible to, to, uh, you know, even singing to myself, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree wouldn't do it. And that usually does it with any other song that gets caught in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I also just want to say, because you mentioned it, I absolutely love the music of Gallivant and I often have many of those <laughs> tunes, uh, stuck in my head um yeah there yeah that's easy to do i can't i can't even tell you which one i'm afraid to even think of it for fear that they'll be stuck there all night <laughs> so i so i won't start singing it's a new season oh, <laughs> that oh, was yes. great right <laughs> brilliant wow. stuff brilliant brilliant um robert over to you same question okay well first of all i have i have to shout give a, give a fun fact which is that I, I also worked on Gallivant and I- Oh, I, okay, great. And I agree uh, about the earworms. I work more from the, uh, under, more, more on the underscoring than the songs, which were mostly produced by New York guys. And, uh, and the person who wrote the underscore, of course, was Chris Leonards, who uh, in fact was a, an intern on 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. Some of you may recall, he actually orchestrated- Was he? One yeah, I hired him. Oh my God! And now I work for him. You know, all <laughs> things work. come round. Things come <laughs> yeah, around. It's 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 quite it's quite amazing. Uh, so, but as far as as, as recent earworms, uh, you know, I, I I do have to I do have to kind of say that probably the most recent one was "Let It Go," uh, because that was so ubiquitous, and that was a terrific earworm, and uh, and. Uh, uh, Bobby Lopez, who wrote that score, uh, was is also another sort of master of earworms. Very uh, true. And 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 I can't. I just also wanted to give a shout out to uh, my pal Dave Metzger, who orchestrated the musical and I think orchestrated a lot of the songs and the score for the movie as well. And he and I worked together on The Lion King. Um, so there's a you know again there's this connection between people. It's crazy. <laughs> it makes complete sense because when you're surrounded by amazing folks, um, they start to find one another. Um, uh, Brad, let's uh, end with you for this question. Um, that, that's a hard one. The, uh, uh, and I was fortunate to have um, played on a, a number of 
Disney scores uh, underscore and songs, which are usually on separate sessions. Um, we did Moana and then we did Frozen. So uh, I, I don't, I mean, my kids are growing up, so I didn't see those movies. And I, you know, I, I don't honestly remember the songs, but um, one that you taking it back to when my kids were little, and I think this was a Disney film, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Um, right. That we, we did both the underscore and the songs, which was all Danny. Um, but uh, that I, I still think that's a, one of the really fun musical movies. Uh, the songs are great. The underscore is great. The, the uh, animation is uh, unique. Uh, so that's a, that's a movie that comes to mind in this discussion. Sounds good. Um, last me is a question for each of you. Uh, what Disney film do you feel is the most underrated music? So maybe it doesn't get as much love as it should. Uh, you're also welcome to mention films or projects that you've been involved in, um, if they're applicable. Uh, let's maybe start with Chris. Cool. That's tough. Um, so wait, so the, uh, the, the, the music was underrated or the, the film? The, the, the music itself, yeah. Huh. Was, um, geez, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think I have to take a pass. I can't think of any that I've worked on off the top of my head that um, the, the film that is, is incredibly underrated and wouldn't have been had it been a Disney film is The Iron Giant. Yes. And yes. Uh, I, I know that doesn't strictly Indeed. fall under the rules, sure. but you know, yeah. uh, the That's Warner Brothers great. just kind of dropped the ball in promoting the film, and it was, and it's still a cult, you know, a, a cla it's a classic. It's become a classic. It's beautiful, and Michael's score is gorgeous. Uh, we, we, I think we had pretty good luck uh, when, whenever we did uh, 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 Disney films. The, the, the ones, the kind of the uh, grown-up, semi-grown-up live-action ones. Um, uh, Adventures in Babysitting, which is a, a, a Disney uh, film, the John Hughes right. script. Michael did the score for that. That didn't really get any attention at all, even though I think the film was successful. Uh, it's a, and it's a wonderful score, all orchestrated by Michael as well. Good point. Yeah. Steve, let's move over to you for this question. Underrated well, music. Mean, um, for underrated music, I don't no, but I can give you an underrated Disney film, which is a picture I did sure. a while back, um, and it's called Crimson Wing, The Mystery of the Flamingos, or something like that. It was for Disney, Disney Nature. Nature. Yeah. And the film kind of sank without trace. It's really just a lot of wildlife footage of flamingos. It's quite, it's quite nice if you watch it, but nobody really paid any attention to it. But the music's had a massive afterlife, and you can hear it sort of every place, actually. You know, and it it was the end. If you listen to the theory of everything, all the last five minutes was just licensed from the Crimson Wing. And uh, oh, wow. so, I mean, it's a shame it wasn't more of a success, but the music has found a, a great uh, amount of afterlife. And it won, won all the nature awards that you can win, but that doesn't really, really mean anything. But anyway, I feel like that's an underrated Disney picture, personally. 
but yeah. I worked in it, so I have to declare an interest. <laughs> hey, it still it still counts. Thanks for raising some attention there, Brad. How about you? Uh, well, I, my first reaction is the same as Chris's. It's like kind of drawing a blank on that. But what I would say about that is that Disney, being the gigantic corporation that it is, has has city blocks full of lawyers and city blocks full of accountants and and people that so it, by the time a project even gets made it's so heavily vetted that there are no dogs there and uh and there's nothing that's going to get overlooked so <laughs> you know I, I can't imagine a disney movie ever being overlooked period <laughs> you know because they just work too hard at getting it out and they have too much invested in it by the time they're getting it out so that would be my thought about that. Fair enough, Robert. Any thoughts? Uh, well, I yeah, I would I would certainly echo what what Brad just said. Is that uh, uh, you know, Disney was a mar was so great at putting really good people together to work on their stuff. So all the movies that were really all the movies that had good music also were really good movies, and the ones that didn't have good that weren't good movies didn't have didn't seem like they had good music. And so it's, it is very difficult to, to sort of uh, pick anything out. But I would have to say that 101 Dalmatians, I don't think has gotten nearly the due that it should, especially, you know, as you said, it's the, maybe the first live action remake that Disney did. And I'm glad that we're talking about it, you know, that it's been 25 years, but really it's hardly been, um, you know, one of the, the, the iconic films that that people think of, especially compared to the original animated version. And I think it is just one of the greatest scores, as we've been talking about, that that, that we all did. It was just, yeah. you know. I appreciate you sharing that, Robert. And I certainly recognize that there there's some bias given uh, who's on the call. But when when you and I first started communicating, I had shared with you, like, you know, it's one of these it's one of these scores, it's one of these films too, that that feels timeless, that also just feels, as a listener, if there's like an effortlessness that comes through and having recently rewatched the film, um, but also being someone who's very intimately familiar with the soundtrack as someone who listens to it uh, fairly frequently, so, um, uh, so you all know that, but it, it, it stands on its own. It's a fantastic listening experience outside of the film. And then you put it and then you, you know, watch it all together within the film context. And it's, it's magic. And I would say that underrated is an appropriate word because not, not all scores can um, stand alone as being really profound. And it's one I, I remember as a young child and, and even as a 29 year old, I, I'm still very much enchanted by it. So, um, so not that I'm kissing any butts here, but I'm uh, I'm definitely yeah. very appreciative of 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 you referencing that. And, and I think based on what you all have collectively shared, it's a it's a charming and magnificent score that stands the test of time. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. Last, last question for y'all. I realize it's been <laughs> a really rich discussion. So maybe um, quick answers or things that come to the top of your mind. This is just a random question. I usually throw in a random question for all my guests. So thinking about 101 Dalmatians, if you remember the film, is there a favorite scene that stands out? This is for anybody. 
I should have. I'm going with the yeah. rooftops now that I remember that it was Morris Code. Yeah, the roof on the roof. Rooftops. Yeah. Roof on the roof. Roof, yeah, on, the and roof when, on the roof. And when Cruella walks down the catwalk. Oh yeah. <laughs> that that was pretty great. Yeah, Cruella was great. Anything that anything with her in it was great. <laughs> that was a that was a well, oh, well that was well cast yeah. that role. Yeah. Yeah. LB. Exactly. Who's that guy? Glenn Close? <laughs> yeah, that guy. That's, that's a Glenn's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she killed on the Academy Awards, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She did. She can dance. <laughs> It'll definitely be interesting yeah, to well, see how Emma Stone uh, puts her on take on the character with the forthcoming Cruella. Because in a, in a sense, 101 Dalmatians, uh, life is extended through this new interpretation of the villain. Yeah. Wasn't there a, didn't Angelina Jolie do one also? Maleficent. Maleficent, yes. Yeah. Which was, which was, but that wasn't really Cruella de Vil. It was sort of based on okay. a composite of different. I, I just saw the billboard down at the bottom of the hill here. And I thought, okay, looks like Cruella to me. <laughs> Indeed, Cruella, Cruella de Vil. Um, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. I want to make sure that uh, listeners may know how to follow your work and, and learn more about each of you. Um, could you maybe share if, and I, and I mind you, I know some of this already, but so everybody knows um, if you have websites or uh, presence on social media or forthcoming projects, um, how can folks follow your work? Brad, maybe we'll start with you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm notoriously bad with having a, a, a social media presence, but um, I, like Bob, I've been turning more and more to composing music that I've wanted to compose all along. Um, Bob's doing uh, more in music theater. I've been doing more orchestral music and um, I uh, had a horn concerto recorded by the Nashville Symphony about five or six years ago. And that you can find on uh, anywhere, <laughs> Spotify, iTunes, etc. cetera. Um, and and um, I got some other stuff on uh, SoundCloud that uh, probably if people dig around there, they can find. I, I wrote a piece for which kind of imagined what it's going to be like when we go back to work. I wrote this during the pandemic. It's called When We Return. Mm -hmm. And I think if you search that on uh, SoundCloud, you can probably find it. Uh, and it's beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Chris, how about you go next? Oh, shameless plug? Great. <laughs> uh, well, so like, uh, like uh, uh, Robert... I have to practice saying that. And Brad <laughs> Warnar, I uh, am also have a, a, another life these days, and uh, I, I do, still do what I do, and I'm working on Lost in Space and stuff with Chris Leonard's, and um, maybe coming to England pretty soon, Steve. By the way, I'm wow, about to start a film That's from good. there. And uh, I, but in my other one of my other hats is that I'm a, a writer, and I write. Uh, plays and uh, novels and uh, my second play uh, is getting mounted uh, this September in Ohio and also in Connecticut uh, at a slightly later date that the September 10th for Ohio and then the depends on when they 
put their theater back together because they had a water make brain get a water main break uh so my, that work is uh on my website which is uh christopher scott and uh that's uh that's me cool, cool. well as and we say and, uh, and i have what do they call a um uh what do the kids call it these days when you got good search engine uh for optimization no, uh, yeah so, yes right uh, uh search engine optimization mm -hmm. seo so if you google christopher scott brooks i fill your page <laughs> all the chris we could ever want oh, <laughs> and God. then some yeah robert over to you that's that's very cool i uh i am fortunately blessed with a very unusual last name so uh if you ever if you ever want to Google Robert Elhai, you'll, you'll, there's only me. Uh, but I do have a website uh, as well, and, a, and, a, and I'm also not really great with social media either, but I do try to keep the website uh, updated uh, with, what I'm, with what I'm doing. And I do have something coming out. I do have two projects. One project that I arranged was, was just um, premiered over YouTube, and I have another one that's that I've composed that's premiering next month. It's a 15 minute Zoom opera about a classroom that's on Zoom, wow. <laughs> sort of meta. But um, that's going to be on, that's going to be uh, presented next month. So I'm, uh, so, so you can reach me pretty easily, I would say. It's robertlhyde.com. Wonderful. And last but not least, Steve. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think I have much of uh, an internet sort of presence. It's just not really me. I am on IMDb. Apart from that, I don't think there's really much. But I do still do stuff. I've been doing quite a lot of um, video games, I suppose, for the want of a better word of it. I do a thing called The Sims 4, which is like a, a kid's game of dressing up which is like one of the most fun jobs I've ever had and continues on for the last six or seven years. This year I did, a um, last year, I did a thing called The Ghost of Tsushima for Sony, and that was like a pretty big sort of hit. So I kind of, not doing so much in film anymore, but kind of, but still doing some. I did The Dig with um, um, Rafe Fiennes. I work with Rafe quite a lot on whatever films he does, and he's got another film coming up, I think. So, you know, still cranking away at it. And uh, there it is. Are you still, are you still working you with Tom and Jerry with us? Tom yeah, I recorded Tom and Jerry. Yeah, it was yeah. lovely to get back into Abbey Road. I never expected in that year that I could get in there. And it was kind of strange because we were all distanced and it was, wasn't quite like the usual working Abbey Road, but it was still great. And it sounded brilliant, I thought. Sounds it sounds fantastic. It yeah. was really fun to work with. Yeah, yeah. Abby, Chris's music is very, very good. You know, he's really good, Chris Leonard. Yeah, he is. He is. He is very good. Very nice. Also, someone who's very familiar with the orchestra and very detail oriented. Well, uh, we can find you all in in many different places, and and certainly. For listeners, I encourage you all to, to listen back to 1996's 101 Dalmatians. Brad, Chris, Robert, Steve, 
It's been a lot of fun. I feel like I've been seated right next to you all at a pub and we've just been uh, recounting fun memories uh, along the way. Really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for being on Notably Disney with me. At a rather rough pub, I'm afraid, from my Thank point you, yeah. of view. It's, it's your round, mate. You can take the boy out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out the boy. <laughs> I love it. Brad, so thank, you for, thank you for bringing me together with three guys that I totally love as much as I do. This has been so much great fun. Yeah, it's been wonderful to reminisce. <laughs> yeah, it has. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, thank you, guys. Well, I hope you gleaned a lot of good insights from that conversation. My thanks again to Brad, Chris, Robert, and Steve for gathering together to reminisce about working on Dalmatians and their various projects over the years. And certainly, as you heard, there's much more that's in store from each of them on various fronts. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 